Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. That was kind of creepy. <laughs> and the headphones, I'm like... <laughs> I think we did well. I, I agree. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Are we recording right now? Yes. Uh, I watched The Exorcist with the guy that wrote it and a bunch of nuns. That's that, a cold Tell us more. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, he This has... story was not at all pre-selected in advance <laughs> of this episode. That was just like a minute ago. That's true. Basically, they... Basically, they have an indoor pool in their house. The guy that wrote The Exorcist and his wife. So you knew well. and some nuns yeah. sat down to watch the mo- the movie The Exorcist. With the guy that wrote it. And then you all got in the pool. No, the pool was before. We oh, all went okay. swimming. Exor- Exorcist was after in the orange pool. pool. It got dark. And, then they, yes. and then they made us a bunch of Lebanese food because he's Lebanese and it was really good food. And then he's like, all right, you guys want to watch The Exorcist? And we're all like, Exorcist. Exorcist, and we like all got. They have a big movie theater. Yeah, they have a big movie theater, (laughs) and so we all just sat down and watched The Exorcist, and he like explained it to us as we went. Remind everyone what the name of the Exorcist guy is. Will well, Bill Blatty, but Bill Blatty. Blatty. He wrote the book. Exorcism was common in the early Christian period through the 300s, and then gained popularity again starting in the 13th century, with a thousand years off in between, give or take. In the 16th century, with the rise of Protestantism, exorcism reached its greatest popularity. The word exorcism comes from the Greek exorkizin, which means to demand an oath. The devil was compelled to tell the truth in the name of God. This oath was essential to the next step, the interrogation in which the exorcist worked to get the demon's name. This practice waned, especially after the Salem witch trials, when exorcists concluded that the demon often lies about himself and those he associates with. Next came physical torture. This was a regular feature of exorcisms during the days of the Roman Empire, fell out of favor during the Middle Ages when judicial torture was banned, and then returned in the Renaissance. Exorcists argued that the soul could be purified through torture, that torture always extracted the truth, and that they were punishing the demon and not the person the demon occupied. Body and soul were intimately connected, and so disciplining the body would discipline the soul and drive out the devil. Finally, the exorcists would apply holy objects like the Eucharist, the priest's vestments, or holy relics like remnants of the true cross, or a crucifix blessed by the Pope. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of our secret order of alchemical actors. I am joined this day for our exorcism episode by our grandmaster, Olivia Litterall. Hello. How are things? Um, well, I don't have a demon inside of me. Awesome. But I guess we don't know unless we try to exorcise me. Get it out. Well, we'll see how the night goes. Riley? <laughs> you're not, I, I mean, you're, uh, I'm not foaming at the mouth no. yet, or vomiting. Speaking in tongues. Or my head's not spinning no. around. You seem pretty unpossessed. I'll start floating above this chair in a minute, though. <laughs> Riley Claxton, our resident Catholic. Hi there. Hey. Oh. Hey there. <laughs> there uh, okay. May, might be exercising someone later. Maybe. I don't know. Could happen. And, my holy water. Oh, good. Actually, I meant to, but I didn't. Just in we case. Have a lo- we have a lot in our you house. You forgot. Yeah, it's but fine. I every room has some. 
Well, guess. this this stage doubles as a church sometimes, so there might be some in the back. We do have some. In no, it's not a Catholic Jesus church. Jesus shots no. in the back. We have Jesus shots. How about yeah, that? Yeah, not the real ones. And a Lucy Bond, our neophyte. Hello. Back in the saddle. It's been a little uh-huh. while. It has been a couple months. Well, we're excited to have you. I know. Today I woke up and I was like, what am I going to do with my day off? And turns out I'm going to learn more about the occult. Right. Expand my knowledge. What better? The, yeah. the Christian occult. Even better. Yes. We the members. Of the, of the secret, secret order of alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. You did a lot better that time, right? 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 Oh, nice. Well, I've been listening. There so you I go. Do you mm-hmm. pause oh. and go back sometimes? I did that today. <laughs> <laughs> today huh? I listened to the demon episode oh. as yeah as some some research and um yeah I did go, <laughs> go back times yeah. and practice. You might be the first person to do that. Uh, it's pretty smart. Yeah, actually, it's a good move. Everyone else just drowns. Yeah, they just fall Bad into it. Let's get to our three plugs. Plug, plug, plug. Bzz, bzz. All right, now we're gonna start with our uh, merch. Which uh, on our website you'll find is called, uh, and I'm gonna give credit credit to Brandon Walls here, one of our alchemical actors. It's called Occult Concessions. <laughs> wow, oh, that's yeah. good. Yeah, about that. So Olivia's that's in charge so of our uh, our merch operations. Merch, merch. I'm the merch queen. Come get your merch. <laughs> what kind of from merch? me? What a merch? What kind what of got? Only t-shirts. Right <laughs> okay. now we okay, are exclusively cool. a t-shirt business, but we are hoping to roll out some more items. But the soon. more merch we sell, right. The more mm. merch space we, we have open. Have. So yes. we want to thank uh, Mickey M, who beta tested our merch page yeah. uh, and was the first to order a shirt from us. Thanks, yeah. Mickey, and uh, he's earned the title Adeptus Beta for mm. this. He requested it, but I was okay with it. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, let's turn to our patrons next. Uh, We've got Madeline HD, who thinks we should have more patrons. We couldn't agree more. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. she's right on it with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very grateful for Madeline. CJ, we have Trance, who found us last month. Thanks, Trance. Kaylee, we remind her of her weird mystic theater friends from school. We are are her weird mystic mystic friends from school. You found us. That's yeah. so weird and niche. <laughs> yeah, that is literally great. Like, what? We've got Renee B. Thank you very much. And uh, Tyler J. Jake J. Dylan M. Who uh, wants to know why Olivia doesn't just go all in and call herself a pagan pure and simple. <laughs> what do I call myself? you got lots of uh, qualifiers. Yeah, well, you know, I'm pagan. But then when people are like, what about Satan? I feel like I have to... You know, be like, caveat, Satanism, <laughs> but also... More of a caveat. footnote. Yeah, it's like a... <laughs> my, if you go into my work cited page, <laughs> works, oh, oh, yeah. you'll, you'll really understand. There you go, the end notes. All right, uh, and uh, fl- final plug of the day, we want to plug our sources. We've got The Devil Within, oh. Possession and Exorcism in the Christian West hmm. uh, by Richard P. Levak. Heresy, Magic, and Witchcraft in Early Modern Europe by Gary Waite. The Life of St. Martin by uh, Sulpicius Severus. Serious guy. That's a nice name. Well, he's a St. Martin's friend. Because who else is going to write that down? You know? And then the the Annals of Bristol in the 18th century. I'm sorry, (laughs) what did you just say to me? It's the the Annals of Bristol in the 18th century. That's my favorite. (laughs) All right, close them up. Plug, plug, plug.
Now we're going to start with the Bible because this is Christian times oh, and Riley's here. That's and a good Riley's place. Here. Yeah, so we got to start with the Bible. Mark, for example, my favorite of the Bible. He distinguished between Jesus healing and Jesus casting out demons and named them as separate acts among the miracles he performed. Sort of sets us up for a, a culture of exorcism as a thing we can do in the mm -hmm. Christian church. Exorcisms entailed healing, but not all healing necessarily entailed an exorcism. Some modern skeptics believe that Jesus' healings and exorcisms were all of, of psychosomatic nature. So uh, by that I mean, for those of you, uh, our listeners, who have not you know, been along the ride all the way, that it, they were psychological in nature and then they manifested physical symptoms. So the argument would be that you, know, you thought that you were sick and then Jesus came by and all he did was relieve you of the idea that you were sick. You know, psychosomatic leprosy. Right. Classic. This is where it falls apart, right? Yeah. Uh, Classic. In addition to leprosy, though, uh, some of the things Jesus uh, was uh, up to curing was uh, asthma and the croup, hydrophobia, insanity, oh. and indigestion. What a eclectic <laughs> group. Like, that sounds like, like at the end of like a drug commercial. <laughs> May cause death. And death, which, death, too. Death and indigestion. Uh, I mean, we're, we have to do some interpretation, right, Riley, to get these these ailments out of the oh, specific yeah. things I mean, Jesus is curing. Like, but you know, um, the woman who bled for a while. Yeah, it's hard know, to tell exactly what was wrong with her. Probably something wasn't right, though. Yeah, probably plug to the Jesus episode. Yeah. It's a weird moment to mention plugs for the woman. We're who talking was about Jesus, and we talked about that we on the Jesus episode. The, the hemorrhaging woman. <laughs> oh, that's true. Riley talked about it. Just the word plug through me. It's like her favorite. And love the hemorrhaging woman. People believed that demons could be passed from person to person or into an animal. The pigs, for example, the legion of demons cast into the pigs. A formula in the Talmud asks that a man's blindness pierce the eyeballs of his dog to heal it. What in the hell? Wait, he had to stab his own dog's eyes to heal his blindness? No, like the spirit would move the oh, blindness oh. into the... Oh, I thought the, you were saying to cure the dog himself. Blind. Yeah. Oh. yeah, the dog would catch the blindness and the guy would be good. Well, that's, that's shitty. <laughs> somebody, yeah, some... PETA. PETA. Where are you Peta's, at, PETA? Where were you when happy. the Talmud was written? Where was PETA when the Talmud was written? <laughs> you dropped the ball on that one. Hot <laughs> Study, they have to go after Steve Irwin. Right, of all people. Exorcism became a powerful conversion tool in the early church, with Jesus' followers casting out demons from their converts that they believed to be pagan deities. So we're sort of switching gears. We're not talking about demons proper, mm -hmm. but the early disciples are trying to get rid of, you know, fairies and gnomes and stuff who are in your body. So that's unpleasant. One of the most famous exorcists in early Christianity was Martin of Tours. He was born in Pannonia, which is now Hungary. Oh. It's a shame they didn't stick with Pannonia. That's yeah, I like that name in Hungary. That's how I always thought it was when I was little. Hungary? Yeah, because, I mean, that's not how I, we spelled Hungary. Well, that could go a couple ways, though. Is Gary hung, or did we hang Gary? Yo, is... Never <laughs> I think Gary is hung, and he's just... Gary is hanging. Oh. <laughs> so then that's a good that's a good place to be, be with Gary. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, we're talking about Martin though, uh, not Gary. <laughs> okay. yep. And he lived from 316 to about 397. This episode's gonna be eight hours long if we keep on like this. All right. Uh, so, <laughs> Set myself off. No more Steve Irwin. So he <laughs> No, don't bring him back now. 
<laughs> Martin of Tours lived from 316 to about 397, roughly 200 years after Jesus' ministry. He joined the Roman army and converted to Christianity along with much of the army following the example sent by uh, the Emperor Constantine, whose conversion basically transformed Christianity from the plucky little sect of Judaism into the world religion it is today. Go Constantine. As a soldier, Martin famously divided his cloak in two to share with a shivering beggar in Gaul. He founded his own wilderness order and reluctantly accepted the title of bishop afterwards. People had to come and like beg him to leave the woods. <laughs> Please leave the woods. We need a bishop, and you're so cool. Because he gave someone his coat? Well, that was part of the legend, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, half of it. That seems like a really small detail to be just like, <laughs> no one else was willing to share. <laughs> Here's a share. It's a long guy. time ago. Oh, okay. They have to take what they, they, they can get. Yeah, that yeah. is true. Sometimes used to be surprised. We have some weird facts about saints because you just, especially from that long ago, you've got to take <laughs> what you can get, you know? From like anything you find, you got to. There's not much history. Think yeah, about St. Valentine, who's like a classic, but I mean, we have the weird stuff that we think we know about him yeah weird name one thing um okay well the whole like oh, there's a lot actually i'm trying to think him stepping on the heads of like uh um pagans but no uh oh. hey well yeah but more her heretics which mm. wouldn't be pagans they'd be heretics are more like christians that are teaching they've gone the wrong way exactly it's not like you just also that, around kicking him in the head. and that writing a letter to your Valentine. His Valentine was his goddaughter. So a lot of Catholics, like we celebrate Valentine's Day by writing letters to our godchildren. Mm. Like, oh. like I write one to my little brother every year because it's not a romantic person. His Valentine was his goddaughter. So if we celebrated St. Martin's Day, we'd all be cutting our coats in half. We would. Huh. Yeah. There you I'm go. I might start doing we would that. Share, yeah, we would share them. But well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring poetic. you all. I'll bring you all like pieces of cloth on St. Martin. Happy St. Martin's Day. Yeah, that sounds fun. We should do. We should that make that a like thing. That sounds like it should be a thing though. Yeah, let's already do that. I'm gonna get on this. All right. Again, eight-hour episode God, today. This is so right. bad. So you know. All right. So Martin achieved a series of miracles in his lifetime. He raised several people from the dead. He confronted the devil on the road, and with his faith in Christ, expelled him when he tried to discourage the young monk. And he destroyed a pagan temple while the heathens looked on, protected by two angels. Martin was protected. Angels. Not the pagans. No, no, they're just watching. <laughs> Olivia's writhing. It's fine, I knew, I know, I know, I know what history is. This is what the saints are up to. Okay, so destruction of non-Christian objects and places of worship was a theme for Martin. Sorry, Olivia, it's going to get worse. No, I know. There was apparently a monument that had been raised over the bodies of people believed to be martyrs somewhere in his bishopric. Yeah? Bishopric? Did I got that, get that right? That's bishopric. a word? Yeah, it's where you're, like your bishop... No. That's, we now yeah. we call it like a diocese. Yeah. Now, but I, that's I, cool. I know. I agree. We've we've broken up with all the good words: Pannonia, Bishopric. Bishop. Martin prayed over the monument that the spirit of the dead man buried there should appear. The shade materialized, and Martin questioned it, learning that this person had not, in fact, been a Christian martyr, but rather a thief who had been beheaded mm. for his crimes. People nearby did not see the shade as Martin did, but they heard the voice. Having ferreted out the truth, Martin had the altar destroyed. Loved to destroy things. Just his bag. And he exercised demons. Described by his friend Sulpicius Severus in his Hagiographic Life of St. Martin. Riley, quick definition. Hagiography, go. I actually couldn't tell you. That makes me sad. Oh, it's a, 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 a praising 
uh, book that praises a saint. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. What is I've it? never heard that before. It's a hagiography. I've never heard it either. So it's, it's always in service of praising. Wow. So if someone writes your hagiography, they would be writing about how awesome you are. I've never oh. heard of that. Yeah, there's no criticism of you in the course of a hagiography. Oh, I, yeah. I want one of those. Yeah, we need to get on. All right, that's better than a memoir. Oh, Lucy's going to write a biography. I'll, I'll do it. Thank you. <laughs> wow. And then Olivia doth don the headphones <laughs> and, and giveth to the people her podcasting. <laughs> the <laughs> rustle of her jacket. You can hear through the mic. Don't at me. <laughs> All right, so let's get to some of these uh, deeds of, of Martin. A man named Tetradius had a servant who was possessed by a demon, and he came to Martin for help, throwing himself at Martin's feet. And what follows now will be the story of Martin's two exorcisms. Dear Bishop, you must help us. Our servant boy is demon-possessed. I can't get him to come out of the house, let alone here to you. Please, Martin, you must go into the house with me where the demoniac rides. I beg you. You know, Tetradius, that as a Christian, I cannot visit the home of an unconverted heathen. Oh, Martin, if you drive the demon out of the boy, I will convert. My whole house will become Christian from that moment forward. Very well. I trust you are a man of your word. Come along, Tetradius. And Martin went to the house and put his hand on the boy and cast the evil spirit out of him. Around the same time, Martin had an encounter with another demon. On crossing the threshold of a certain householder, he suddenly stopped. Something is amiss. I perceive something in the courtyard. He's got a Something horrible. A demon. There's a demon in your courtyard. Depart! Depart? I'm not going anywhere. That's right, Martin. You found me, and now I possess this guy who was just walking through the courtyard minding his own business. Wrong place, wrong time, bucko. And it looks like this guy that I'm possessing was walking around with a box cutter. How do you like that? I've got a box cutter, and I'm going to carve up every dude named Martin crosses my path. Nobody's getting through this courtyard today. How do you like that, Martin? Huh? Don't make me cut you. Stand still, demon. The demon <sighs> was frozen <sighs> in place. Okay, so maybe I won't carve you up with my box cutter, but I still got some teeth and ash. I'll bite you, Martin. I'll bite you and anyone who comes through close to this fine set of incisors. Martin stuck his fingers in the possessed man's mouth. Oh That's a, a strange thing to do. If you possess any power, devour these. Guess I'd rather not. And then Severus says, rather cryptically, when he was compelled by punishments and tortures to flee out of the possessed body, while he had no power of escaping by the mouth, he was cast out by means of a deflection of the belly leaving disgusting traces behind him. That's all a direct quote so from Severus. Like vomiting? Vom yeah. Yeah, uh, so I looked up the word deflection because, yes, with my years of schooling, I had never seen this word before, and it means a flushing out. So, like, vomiting. So vomiting. Or mm. diarrhea? It Bad. could have gone in... Which end is it? We don't know. We or, don't like, know. Or, like, C-section? Did it come out of his nose? Came out of his uterus, as <laughs> Riley's trying to say. Let's get on to the Protestant, shall we? Okay, yes. so that's early Christianity. We'll put that behind us. Early Christianity believed uh, or held the belief that anyone who believed in Christ could cast out demons. So that's anybody. Hmm. You're just walking around believing in Christ. You can cast out demons. Yes, you can, and you can. However, when we get to the medieval world, there's going to be more rules. Not just yeah. anybody can do it. Yeah. Who can do it now, Riley? 
priests. The priests, yeah. Uh, formal exorcism, but we have... Oh, you have informal exorcism. Yeah. Where you don't have to wear a jacket and a tie. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a casual affair. It's more relaxed, so if you don't get the demon, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back tomorrow. And not the, not, it's not, you know, not the rite of exorcism, but okay. like, you know... We can talk about it later, but... Well, I'd love to hear with our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, so what is like, a casual exorcism? I mean, like, so, like, by virtue of baptismal rite, by the priesthood given to a baptismal rite, like, um, you uh, are able to use basically anything else. You know, there's different types of exorcism prayers Okay. Um, that we pray throughout the day, use of holy water, use of sacramentals. You can bless your own house. You can protect your own house. You can cast evil out of your house, out of, you know, So when do we need a priest? When, when there is an the active dust? possession ah. that the rite of exorcism needs to be performed to cast that When you can see the demon, demon tap dancing in front of you, you got to call the priest. Mm-hmm. But if you're just keeping your house clean, yeah. you can do like, that on your own. Like, my great-grandmother passed away a few weeks ago, and we had that holy water all around her. We were using, we could use by ourselves, we didn't need a priest there, holy water, sacramentals, you know, so well, you have to be baptized, though. You couldn't just, like, believe. But if we no, put you, you back to the year oh, 300, you could do that, too. Yeah. Okay. You could have cast out demons in yep. 300. But no more. It's the medieval yeah. period. So we're more on Riley's system here. Apparently, you can clean up your house. <laughs> yeah. I, I bet that's possible in the medieval period. But probably yeah. you needed the priest, actually. They they really liked... Uh, I don't know if it was much a part of... <laughs> they yeah. to be involved, yeah. yeah. But also, acts Kept of exorcism, I think, are a little trouble. more... Acts of exorcism are a little more common... Like in your kind of daily faith life. Now that maybe they weren't as much in the medieval oh, time. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, definitely so people would be less our, inclined to cleanse their house. Yeah, I mean, definitely like, yeah, like acts of exorcism are really, I mean, even just in the, like the daily prayers we pray and but different acts, it's de- yeah. it's very much part of our day-to-day faith life now. So what was interesting about medieval exorcism, uh, getting back to the 1200s and so, is that your, your, you as an exorcist, your personal moral virtue was tied to the success of your exorcism. Mm-hmm. So it was not just through Jesus. Mm-hmm. It was also through your faith and morality that you could... So, like, the holier you like you yeah. were, the more successful you were means, the, you know, the holier you are. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. Less holy, less success. So this made exorcism fairly unique among the sacraments. As Riley will tell you, your priest could be pretty amoral, and your wedding will still count. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But your exorcism might not count. So, Protestants maintained the laity's ability to perform exorcisms. So when there were folks outside the church, it's true that that anyone could do it. Before the year 1200, demoniacs generally suffered physical symptoms, convulsions, contortions, enhanced strength, sort of like if you're on angel dust or something. PCP? Uh, oh, I was oh. going to say PCP? Yeah. That's what we called it in the D.A.R.E. program when I was in the 8th grade. Dare. Angel, you called it Angel Dust? Well, that's what the, the cop would come in. Because he didn't like, want to actually say he would the name, word. No, he would name all the things. He would, <gasps> Angel Dust, also known as PCP. So I would always hear them together. <laughs> I found my D.A.R.E. t-shirt from back in the day a while ago. They're kind of... They, like, sell them at, like, cool Forever 21 t-shirt. now. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, they're, like, a trendy Nancy thing to Reagan wear. Nancy Reagan was a very stylish woman. <laughs> <clears throat> so, um... What I'm trying to say is it's like bath salts. Being possessed by a demon is like sniffing the bath salts. So uh, after 1200, scholastic study of demons led to demoniacs speaking in foreign tongues and prophesying, and exorcists began to focus on extracting information from the demon. So there's a sort of correlation between us getting more interest in the demon. So as the scholar explores the topic, the priest knows more about it, and it actually changes the way people are possessed. 
the demon gets more vocal. Yeah. Well, and it's oh. also, so the rule about it now, too, is for exorcists during, they call the, the interrogation of the demon, um, and then draws the demon basically to tell the truth, which is, ir- irritates the demon, because, like, we say it's, you know, it is a liar. Right. So it irritates the demon. But, um... That it's never, it should never be out of curiosity. That you're not just asking the demon questions because you're curious. It's always like it's for the purpose of, of the oh. exorcism. That it's never out of, it should never be out of curiosity. What if it's out of curiosity? What are you risking? I don't know, actually. I think it's not like the exorcism will go wrong, but that it's, then the intention isn't pure. That it becomes something selfish. Whereas the priest, it's uh, not a self, it's not about him. Like, it's his, he's a, yeah. So how would they. Providing a service. I guess I'm thinking about like Solomon. Look well, he was that, a Jew. Like, I know, but like <laughs> different rule. Different, I mean, it's not. Yeah, no, 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 I guess. But I'm it is based on like, Solomon in yeah. part. Yeah, I mean, That's, all those parts of the. Yeah, right. I guess. And, I'm, yeah, and you did make the point, like in the last episode, that the more that you like get to know your demon like it gets to know you and that whole yeah. like control thing well that's right. the whole part of it too is, is very yeah. yeah like keeping that very that it's so it's that it's the purpose of freeing the person and it's we also i mean we do glean things from the interrogations there's this priest who just passed away recently like 93 who was like the vatican's like big guy exorcist he's written a few books um on like conversations that he's had with um demons, demons. and hmm. satan like throughout his it's really interesting but that it it was Getting never for out. himself yeah. out of curiosity i guess that's why i'm saying like yeah. solomon would be distasteful it's <laughs> like right well he was building the temple for god yeah but still i feel like you could yeah he was he argue was, yeah. he had selfish reasons personal stake yeah it mm-hmm. feels that way when you read about solomon that he was definitely personally invested in controlling demons yeah. like he enjoyed that and yeah and that it's it shouldn't be it shouldn't be about pride that the point is that then pride isn't allowed and that's the other thing is that right. like each diocese has an exorcist a priest that has an exorcist but you don't know who it is it's a really weird thing is because oh. the but the point is is that they don't that like you can go to your parish priest and then he can Hook they rule up. out all the other factors oh okay. right but Before then they call the exorcist yes yeah oh, but that yeah. the point is but it's also so it's fun it's for like protection of the guy like if you knew if everyone knew like who that was just yeah that but also uh, the pride part of it like, like it's not yeah it's like not an like, executioner oh, like, i'm the exorcist like yeah and then yeah. people yeah. flocking to him and whatever yeah. but, but yeah. that it's also um a pride thing that like this guy again that it's not for his own curiosity that he's interrogating because it's not like oh well I got this answer and I got whatever the point is that it's a it's a service right because the it's priest who's the exorcist is the cool priest <laughs> right so he shouldn't he's I understand a, the spiritual yeah. gift yeah. right but that it's it shouldn't be about pride that he's it's purely a service that he's giving and it feels it's very else. Buddhist to me now oh yeah yeah hmm. to not put yourself before the more you get wound up in your own ego. The further you get that's from anything like that. Your is yeah. not your amigo. <laughs> yes. That, I believe Nancy Reagan made t-shirts to that effect as well. Uh, so, I've been thinking about her that. recently. Historically, uh, Catholic exorcists learned from exorcism manuals, these details that uh, we're talking about. And they conducted dialogues with the demons, as Riley's pointing out. Protestant exorcists, by uh, contrast, had a strong distaste for ritual. That should come as no surprise. And they labeled all demoniacs as possessed by Satan rather than fishing around for the names of particular demons. They were just like, it's That's Satan. Simpler. Yeah, yeah they, they love to simplify. We only knew sometimes it's Satan and sometimes it's not. They could. Right, you know. so it could be Satan for a Catholic, but it sometimes could also it, be these other guys. Sometimes it is. I feel like Protestants that's like don't have to ask the question. a big deal. Well, it, it is Satan. Well, though, and right? it took a while to pull it that it is him because it's the right. whole like boiling the demon down to the truth it he's, takes a while and he gets honcho. super and whenever it is saying he gets super mad you read the dialogues he's like super pissed that now they, know they it's figured him. it out 
Well, the Protestants just make that guess right away, so. <laughs> They're like, we don't care who you are. <laughs> we're just you're going Satan. with Satan, yeah. You're Satan. How about Anything I yes, that you might are. be ritual. <laughs> yeah, you just, you know, we're not ritual, you're Satan. So anyway, for a Protestant, <laughs> speaking of that, they fasted and prayed without much fanfare, and were only concerned with the spiritual salvation uh, from the devil's temptation. So they could, like, sit in a closet to, to do this, as opposed to the Catholic direct interaction with the demoniac. This is not to suggest that all Protestants avoided any sort of ritual, though. Riley, you'll like this. This guy, Johannes Bergerus of the Netherlands, was the most infamous of the Protestant exorcists and enraged both Catholics and Calvinists with his use of semi-magical elements in his cures, like wolf's eyes and pulverized human teeth. That's some pagan mm. shit. Take thrice three teeth of a dead man's head, pulverize them and make a fumigation from them and vomit. Take the witch's excrement and put it in one of your shoes, and put it on the other wrong foot. It just sounds like a grimoire. Yeah, pretty much. That's why they didn't like him yeah. on the Christian that side That makes of sense. <laughs> yeah. Yep. They were like, you're a pagan. <laughs> <laughs> put it on the other wrong... What does that actually mean, though? The other wrong foot? Like, not your... It's like, take other your left wrong foot. foot. When the the other left shoe, wrong... put it on your right foot. When you start reading old... It's full of poop, though. ...grimoire stuff. <laughs> but on the... So they're wrong foot. Bergeris was an outlier among Protestants, whose brand revolved around a complete aversion to anything that even remotely resembled magic. During the War of Religion, after the rise of Protestantism across Europe, Catholics and Protestants competed over whose exorcisms were the most effective. You're just like catcalling each other in the street, right? Uh, Protestants called the Catholics' exorcisms magical rather than religious. Unlike Bergeris's teeth and excrement, Catholics tended to utilize the Eucharist to drive out the devil. They, you need an implement, right? Mm -hmm. In France, the Eucharist was featured in exorcisms pre performed before large crowds. My, I have a friend who's now a priest. When he was a seminarian, he was a part of an exorcism in Haiti Ooh. of a little, like, 10-year-old girl. And they used the Eucharist. They were doing, like, it was a big, they're in a big community there. And this little girl, what was the, he said it was, um, Zombie. The, Zombie. Yeah, it's uh, one of the, That's what, the Haitian deities. Yeah, it was, it was mm -hmm. one of their... That, La, Grand, La Grande Zombie. Yeah, and the little, the 10-year-old girl was, that was like foaming at the mouth and like writhing on the floor. And then he said that she was, started speaking Latin. And she was like, and this was like an uneducated girl, like an uneducated little girl who like spoke Creole, maybe a little French, and was speaking these, these insane Latin phrases as they were like, she was like writhing on the ground, but they used the Eucharist. That so you're it. telling me she was possessed by one of her own gods? So the so, Catholics are is, still no, labeling pagan deities as demons? What did he say? <laughs> or that it was something they were practicing, like the town they were in. I forget what he was talking about. Hmm. That was like something they were practicing. Regardless. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, in 1565, a married teenage girl named Nicole Aubrey began experiencing... Nicole? Nicole Aubrey. I'm trying to Frenchify it because oh. she's a oh. French girl. Oh. Okay. I just uh, <laughs> so she's a married teenage, married teenage girl. She's experiencing physical torment after having a vision of her dead grandfather. She stopped eating and began speaking in a low voice, claiming to be possessed by her grandfather who had died without confessing. The family performed a series of penances to abate the grandfather's spirit, but to no avail. So they arranged for the Dominican priest, Pierre de la Motte, to exorcise her. The spirit confessed that it was not the ghost of the grandfather, but rather... A demon. Classic. Ah. This has always happened. The girl went deaf, blind, and mute. She went deaf, blind, and mute. Yeah. Wow. And the demon reported inviting more demons into her body. So I guess she was deaf, blind, and mute, except when the demon talked. 
the priest exorcised 28 of these demons, driving them to Protestant Geneva. Because that's where you're going to send your Catholic <laughs> demons. Bye. Over to the Protestants in Geneva. Here, you guys. You try to get rid of these You're demons. so good at exorcisms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so a couple of them still lingered, though. They brought in a bishop, Jean de Boer, but still the demon clung to her. They transferred her to Léon, where they began a series of bizarre public exorcisms. Every day, they would parade Nicole through the streets to a scaffold where she would give a sermon in the person of Prince Beelzebub about how he was inspiring the Huguenots, who were the French Protestants, to abuse the French Catholics. So the Catholics sort of transformed her into this political tool where, in the voice of the devil, she was saying how she was encouraging... The Protestants. Wow. Let's hear from Beelzebub. Yeah, me and those Huguenots. Those Huguenots are wild and crazy. They know how to have a good time, let me tell you. We broke into Cathedral Notre Dame de Leon and took a communion wafer and cut it up and burned it to pieces. Pow! Right in the wafer. Take that, Catholics. So that's what they literally accused people of, was cutting up the Catholic wafers. The Catholics were like, you're coming in and cutting up our wafers. People did it a lot during history, but not cutting up wafers. But not, but it once it, but not the wafers anymore. Once it becomes a host, then it becomes a whole right. different deal. Because then you're going in and I don't know which side we were on, consecrated or unconsecrated. Yeah, because then it's a big. I mean, because once it's a consecrated host, because people will do that. That's why it's like. Well, it was the intention, I think. The intention, yeah. <laughs> but even they were really that's what they like. It. Like, because people did it for a while, and so that's why, like, like you have to receive it right away so that you don't like take jesus like you don't like take him like anywhere like it's very like protective of that because people Mm. would take it and then remember like people trying to sell them online and then like doing things and i mean that's also recent but like throughout history of people like desecrating them and get their hands on it so this actually worked though fun fact some huguenots were converted through these exercises (laughs) particularly when the bishop of leon held up a communion wafer and using the wafer managed to drive the last of her demons out Others, of course, mocked the whole exercise as a farce and ridiculous. Catholic exorcisms were generally more effective than Protestant exorcisms, in part because more was done to the patient. So, Protestants tended to fast and pray in their little closet away from the actual victim of possession, whereas Catholics went through their whole routine and reinforced the patient's view that they were possessed, first of all, and then offered a tangible remedy. So just from a psychosomatic faith healing mm-hmm. perspective, the Catholics have got a much more effective system. Mm-hmm. If you're sitting there writhing on the floor and I'm like, I'll be back in three days. I must go <laughs> to my closet. <laughs> right. Yeah, as opposed to like, you know, hovering over you and demanding yeah. to know the name and all these things. It's the same thing as like, um, what's it called? Churches. Why can't I think of? Like where the, they like the laying the, yeah, the laying of the ones, hands yeah. and the what, what? the faith yeah, the charismatics yeah yeah mm-hmm. there's a charismatic very Protestants charismatic Catholics exist as well I think the ones on like YouTube Pentecostals like, maybe that's what I'm thinking but, to some extent yeah it varies yeah. yeah it varies but it's like that you know laying of hands and if you just keep coming at someone eventually I mean yeah out know, goes the demon yeah, yeah you are healed. Mm-hmm. So uh, belief in exorcism also encouraged belief in possession, though. So Mm -hmm. it sort of fed itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there tended to be more Catholics who believed that they were possessed and in need of exorcism than Protestants. Protestants were not Mm -hmm. big on exorcism in the first place. So 
With a stronger culture of exorcism comes a stronger culture of possession. Exorcism had a more difficult life in England. The Church of England was very politically powerful and had the exorcists rounded up and imprisoned within a year. One of the most famous of the English exorcists was William Weston, who was responsible for healing some 500 demoniacs. Weston was imprisoned in 1586, moved to Wisbeck Castle in 1588, the Tower of London in 1599, and finally exiled to Spain. Other exorcists were not so lucky, they were just executed. Oh. Let's move on, <laughs> on that lovely note, <laughs> to the subject of demoniacs and medicine. So all possessions did not have natural medical causes, contrary to a belief among some scholars that has lasted for, at this point, a few hundred years. Through the medieval period, uh, Christian scholars argued that the diseases caused by demons were epilepsy, melancholy, and hysteria, all psychological ailments. Olivia's not buying it. Well, hysteria, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Whenever that comes into play. I mean, it was a real thing that people experienced, but, yeah, highly cultured. Women with hysteria. <laughs> I, it's the, sa the same is true today. Some mental illnesses continue to be cult culturally conditioned. Ancient Greeks believed that epilepsy was caused by the gods. So the idea of seizure or being seized referred to a demon or spirit, going back. But these seizures, which involved a loss of consciousness and control of the body, could not account for demoniacs who spoke in foreign languages and cursed sacred objects and prophesied. Be a weird form of epilepsy. Right. Yeah. Very unusual. <laughs> you know, my, my little brother's seizing again. He's speaking in just right. know. Latin. Yeah. He's just yelling at the crucifix. What's going on here? <laughs> So can't speak English, but he can speak Latin, Latin at the crucifix. Yeah. These complex behaviors weren't possible during a seizure to begin. Mm -hmm. And so physicians turned to melancholy. So, okay, fine. We hear They're you, just Riley. Down. <laughs> it's, it's not a seizure. So it's melancholy. <laughs> yeah, you're just bummed. <laughs> so this for them was the, the best possible explanation and the most popular diagnosis during the Renaissance craze. Melancholy ran the gamut of psychological symptoms from anxiety, fear, sadness, and fatigue to hallucination and delirium. Mm -hmm. Like everything could be melancholy. Melancholy was both physical and supernatural. The devil induced it by causing the demoniac's black bile to spread throughout the body and into the brain. We're in a time of humors where there are a series of fluids mm -hmm. that hold things together and control your moods, and your mood influences your fluids too. It's a sort of two-way street. So if you allow yourself to indulge in anger then too much, then your, your bile and stuff will move around and you'll become ill. So, yeah, that's the humor I'm going to start using theory. melancholy as like a... That's how I'm feeling an today. excuse. Like, like <laughs> listen, I can't come to class today. I just... Case of melancholy. Have some of the melancholy. <laughs> just... They're <laughs> like, we got to call the priest. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, while melancholy captured the strange expressions and behaviors of the possessed, it did not account for their more physical symptoms like seizures, which are happening, right? Mm -hmm. It's just they're accompanied by all this other stuff. So epilepsy and melancholy each captured different aspects of possession, but all, all alone, they failed to encompass the full picture. So they're both bad diagnoses. We really need some sort of melancholy epilepsy to make this work. So, in order to accomplish this, here we go, Olivia, hysteria. Ah. The, the diagnosis of hysteria actually goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks and was believed to come from the uterus because uh, it got cold. You got a cold uterus, 
And how did you get a cold uterus, ladies? You're not, not having babies. Having... Lack of activity. Yeah, let that <laughs> uterus sit fallow. It's got to always cold. be at max capacity. Yeah. So what's it's the cure? Keep churning them out. What's the cure, ladies, for a uh, for a cold uterus? Penis. Yes. I was literally going to say dick, and I thought I couldn't. Yes. Damn it. Penis is fine. Penis is the more medical explanation. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, penis or sex uh, prevented or cured hysteria, and if it didn't, the male partner would anoint his penis in pleasant odors to coax the uterus back down. So the belief when the uterus got cold was that it like literally rose away from your birth canal. It, like it like. Yeah. That's why like later yeah. they had women on the sewing machines that would like do shit to like. What? Stimu- you yeah. ever heard about yeah. this? Never mind. <laughs> like a vibrator attached to a sewing machine? Like a little bit, but not really. But it was yeah. the ideal yeah. was that through like so that pedal was working a couple ways. Cut. So well, I like... don't think it was the pedal. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Lucy's anyway. gestured in a way that we can't describe to our listeners. Anyway. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> where were we? The uterus. Uh, so hysteria was a kind of catch-all. Doctors came to understand that psychological problems could precipitate physical symptoms, and the list of physical symptoms was complete, like anything. Uh, So these psychological problems were the product of personal traumas that then manifested in the body. This is sounding very Freud-y, right? Seizures, but also blindness or deafness or muteness or pain were all tied to past traumas. In the 1600s, hysteria was relocated from the uterus to the brain, and the nervous system, and labeled a neurological disease. Now, it could explain both male and female possession. I could get a cold uterus. Uh, And it could be used as a strictly medical diagnosis to explain away the demon. You just have hysteria, not demons. Uh, The scholar Levick argues this explanation falls apart in the face of group possessions. So, it would happen that an entire church or an entire town could become possessed. We talked about the Mortzine episode, uh, for example, back in our America series a long time ago now. Uh, So neither epilepsy nor melancholy nor hysteria are contagious. Mm -hmm. An entire community cannot experience the same trauma and then have it manifest in demonic possession. Mortzine is just one of many sites, though, where, where mass possessions took place. There was Matencor, Paderborn, Belmont all these different locations across Europe. So while the demoniacs did not share traumas, they did share religious beliefs and a shared conviction that they were possessed. Now we're really starting to understand this. We've got to let go of all these medical diagnoses. It's like the curse thing. Go um, ahead. What it, I can't remember. Hexdeath? Yeah, it's yeah. like the two yeah. different curse. If we don't believe in hoodoo, yeah. then we can't be the victim of a hoodoo yeah. curse, right? Mm-hmm. So we can't become possessed if we aren't in a culture that honors the existence mm-hmm. of possession. But what about people that don't think they're, that are, I mean. Oh, they, you're they, saying like people that don't display that, but don't think that they're possessed? Yeah, like the people that they're not calling their priest saying I'm possessed, but that they're, mm-hmm. I mean, people that aren't actively believing that they're possessed, but that but they're showing the signs or they're, they're yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to talk out of school a little bit. Uh, I would say that from my study of consciousness, the mind can manifest symptoms that uh, of our belief mm-hmm. while denying. Yeah. D- yeah. At the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. So, sort of, you know, like when you fall in love with some the wrong person, mm-hmm. you yeah. say, I don't like that person. But you do. Yeah. Right. I would say that's a sort of yeah, similar yeah, situation. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, 
If we are all in an environment where we believe in possession and somebody gets possessed, we could start to do a kind of aping, which makes us feel like we're possessed. In this way, it becomes contagious. Uh, a little psychosomatic. Like, Wait, what, right, you, yeah, what was yeah, that yeah. word you just aping? We'll ape. We'll uh, ape, yeah. Aping, you know. I don't know. Mimicking. Oh, okay. But like monkey, monkey see, monkey, monkey do. Monkey see, monkey, yes. Oh, okay. a APC. AP do. Yeah. That's silly to say. So if other people in the room are possessed, then you start to feel like you might be possessed. Right. Right. Because it's like, I want I want, I want what they're having. Like, right. <laughs> like if you're at a party and everyone starts taking their pants off, you're like, oh. I guess I should I take guess I should do that too. Yeah. <laughs> so long as, the, I guess it's that kind of party. It's either that or leave. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to leave when everyone's possessed. No. So you take your pants off. So this idea could work just as well outside of a group context with individuals performing their possessions according to what they've heard of others. So we can do it not just in the room with everybody, but we could hear about it. Mm -hmm. And it can shape the way we become possessed. Psychological symptoms are informed, at least in part, by the culture in which they take place. This is a theme we've sort of been touching on, but let's bring it on home. People exhibit the symptoms they believe they should exhibit, and this accounts for the shifts in demoniac's behavior over time. So, personally, based on my years of studying and teaching about the way human beings play and perform, I actually think there's another thing at work here. Mm -hmm. See how you guys feel about this. As I've said before, we as a species crave balance. In this instance, the imbalance is in the area of social control. If we don't have enough social control, personally, we seek it out like children who aren't disciplined, and act out in order to be reminded or reassured that there are boundaries. For the demoniacs, it's the opposite problem. There's too much social constraint and structure, particularly in the area of religion, and so they act out. That makes sense. You yeah. see? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, my little kid, even now, is starting to look for the boundaries. And if I provide <laughs> them, she'll be good and happy. But if I don't provide them, then she's going to lose her mind. Yeah. But if I make too many boundaries you can only walk in this one corner of my house she's you can't touch to any of my stuff yeah she's just going to start peeing all over everything yeah <laughs> so that's essentially what your possessed person is doing they're the my you know little corinne not allowed to leave the corner of the house so they start like throwing their diaper across the room let me, ah, let me know that anymore. i'm not evil yeah uh so uh, if you want to see an example of this visit new orleans on mardi gras <laughs> Uh, you'll see a modern equivalent of acting out against social standards, people who just can't take their workaday lives and are trying to do anything to break that mold. It's a very natural impu impulse. Um, what's important, I think, is that these people are acting out against what we might call the artificial strictures of their society. If we take them outside of their context, their religious context, they're not really violating any moral codes. They're barking and cursing and foaming at the mouth and tearing at their clothes, but they're not murdering and pillaging and destroying people's lives. I think that's important. These people are acting yeah. out, but they're acting out against the religion, blaspheming and cursing and ripping their clothes off and yelling in church. Which is the power at the time. But not hurting anyone. Hmm. So somehow the demon like doesn't want to smack anybody. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's an underlying moral compass that seems to remain intact while they buck at the human-made strictures of their upbringing, often inside, as I'm saying, the very churches that serve as the cornerstones of the control that they're living under. So here's an interesting caveat to this theory before we mull it over. 
Demonic possession and exorcism fell into decline in the 17th century as witch trials began to wind down and some people, particularly the Germans, began to treat demoniacs as mentally ill rather than possessed. Oh, the Germans. But possession and exorcism did not go away. As Riley has been telling us, they're still happening right now. And there's an unbroken line of them going back to the period of decline. They have simply received less attention because with the decline of the witch hunts, they no longer resulted in trials and no trials, no big show, nobody's watching. It's just happening in your house. Maybe, maybe the newspaper gets a phone call. Maybe not. And I mean, now to this day, I think also the fact that it's part of kind of something supernatural. It's not something, it's not taken seriously at all. Right. Like most things part of when, part as of supernatural. When, supernatural was like. Exactly. Ah. It's, you believe, whereas, whereas now, <laughs> people are like. They yeah, get, they're not they buying it, no. so it's even making less news. So in England in 1761, as an example, Molly and Dobby Giles, the daughters of an innkeeper, were visited by a violent and hostile spirit, later identified as the demon Malkai. Anybody know this guy? Yeah, I've heard of the name. Okay. At night, as the girls would start their evening prayers, the trouble would begin. Pins, nails, and glass would materialize to pinch and pierce their skin. They were choked and beaten, and mysterious wounds appeared on their bodies. They even lost whole pieces of flesh. Ouch. Yeah. Their family and other witnesses, a pharmacist named Durbin and a military officer, Major Drax, what a character that is. Like Durbin a Dickens novel. Yeah, right? Here come Durbin and Drax from Molly and Dobby. Uh, so th- these two characters actually saw the girls dragged around the house and tossed as high as five feet in the air. These were signs. Uh, what? Different story. Oh, okay. These were signs. These signs were all external to the girls, what we might call poltergeist phenomena today. But internal signs also developed over time. The girls would bark crow like roosters, fall into convulsions. One girl's tongue was pulled out and seemed to snap back down her throat like the rolling up of a window blind. Oh, I don't like that. One night, their bodies became so stiff that no one could bend them. And then, one at a time, they floated up to the ceiling while their sister remained on the floor, twitching. The girl's father, Richard Giles, was an innkeeper and had just started a delivery service. The girl's possession may have been caused by a business rival. During the course of the possession, a cart was stuck in the road and Richard Giles died. Mrs. Giles finally managed to cure the girls by consulting a healer. Uh, she called. She was called the Cunning Woman of Bedminster. Oh, that's a title. I'm trying to, yeah. <laughs> right? Look at these there names. So the Cunning Woman. Of Bedminster. Right. Told. (laughs) (laughs) Pardon me. The uh, the CWB. She. um... (laughs) Is that a channel? (laughs) Sorry. CWOB. She told Mrs. Giles what to do, Uh, but whatever it was, according to the annals of Bristol, Bristol. Sorry. (laughs) According to the annals of Bristol in the 18th century, this word for word said this: modern delicacy would not permit the anals to disclose. I can't, I can't comment on that. It's too easy. <laughs> no I, I can't. Can't do it. All right, so, but here's what's weird about this. The wars of religion were long over. The age of science and reason had dawned. And yet, demonic possession kept going. 
Its form had changed in significant ways. The devil, in this case, refused to talk through the girls, but rather spoke to them from some disembodied location. The demon operated both inside and outside the victims. The signs of possession were concentrated beyond the girls' subjective internal space to the external world where they might prove themselves to modernized witnesses disinclined to believe in demons. How bizarre that in the age of science and reason, reason, suddenly we have these more objective signs appearing in the presence of the demoniac. External signs of demonic possession are not actually new in the 19th century. Uh, James I made it one of four categories of demonic activity in his treatise on the subject 200 years earlier. But its prominence in this case is, like I'm saying, very striking. Why is it suddenly so important? It's also interesting how the tale resolved with a white lit witch. The, uh, you know, what was it? The cunning woman of Bedminster. Yeah. This is a distinctly modern approach, an occult third way approach to the problem. This sort of magical figure as the benevolent solution to a terrible haunting is really only possible in a culture that has shifted from prosecuting magic to simply marginalizing it. And let's be honest, dismissing it to some extent, except on this podcast and others like it. In strange cases, strange forces are allowed to raise their heads up, although in other contexts, we're inclined to dismiss them as unlikely and unserious. So here we are, strange stuff is going on, we can call the cunning woman. But, you know, if we're doing business in our business times, no cunning women need apply. This is business time for serious things. Only unserious exorcism things are for cunning women of Bedminster. Hysteria. The presence of supernatural signs that cannot be explained away, even in the face of advanced empirical science, suggests that there may be a legitimate paranormal component to demonic possession. Whether or not that component is actually devils is, in my opinion, subject to a healthy share of doubt. There are certain correlations between the victims. They are frequently, but not always, teenagers, Mm -hmm. and frequently, but not always, female. Mm -hmm. Right? Which switches. It's the same thing as, remember, when magic and things happen with girls. The phenomena of demonic possession seems to parallel the argument that Olivia is alluding to from our Poltergeist episode about the power, normal power of girls in the throes of puberty. Really, we did a whole series on that. Oh, we did. Mm -hmm. Lady magic. (laughs) Lady magic. (laughs) That's right. The demonic activity inside and outside of the victim's body is an extension of the victim's own emotional state. This activity may be paranormal, but it may or may not be demonic. Who knows? The exorcist enters the picture as an answer to that victim's problems, both psychological and spiritual, or paranormal, depending on how you want to phrase it. Whether or not we agree with the exorcist's belief system, they succeed in putting the demoniac's experience into a context in which it can be solved. In other words, they give labels in the form of named demons to the afflicted person's trouble and clear a solution in the form of God. Whether or not the problem is actually demons, the cure works if the afflicted believes. This is the theme we keep coming back to. If you believe, then you can achieve the cure. But you have to legitimately believe in an existential way, deep in your heart and soul. We can see this clearly in uh, the case of Anna Eklund of Erling, Iowa. Let's bring it on home to America. Uh, This is 1928. Ready for this? Yes. Because it's going to get a little dark. To give us some perspective, we're talking about demonic possession 
after the discovery of the theory of general <laughs> relativity by Albert Einstein and the de in the midst of the development of quantum mechanics. Great. Right? So just like in the just science that. world, yeah. we are hitting the pinnacle of science. Then you, right? Then you say... Height of science. Satan. Reason? <laughs> Exorcism. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's in Iowa, so it's not like we're, <laughs> like, they've heard of, of all this science stuff in Iowa. Surely an educated public could easily debunk this nonsense. Surely no modern girl could believe that she could actually be possessed by creatures from hell. But the paranormal, as a consequence of the psychological, kept going into the 20th century, all the way from the year 300 in St. Martin. And not only in this case. For example... The exorcism of the pseudonymous Roland Doe, here we go, Riley, in Cottage City, Maryland, in 1949. Stuck in traffic in Cottage City. Inspiration for the book The Exorcist, written by William Blatty. There he is. But back to Anna, uh, which is also a pseudonym, by the way. We use pseudonyms for 20th century demoniacs because, you know, privacy. Yeah. Because, yeah. Starting at the age of 14, Anna felt herself held I back. Get a job. Right. <laughs> After, and they're like, oh. "We don't. We're not that big." <laughs> oh, we can get jobs. Yeah, Riley's talking about the, ex no, the victims of ex. Like she's saying, like, like imagine oh, oh. she's like at an interview or yeah, something. and they're yeah, like, yeah. "Oh, <laughs> like, you, you I remember when you were possessed in the newspaper." So, starting at the age of fourteen, Anna felt herself held back from entering churches, and she became obsessed with sex, particularly what we'd call non-standard sexual acts. <laughs> let me just... Harp. She's 14 already. What was she possibly... Never mind. Non-standard acts. You heard me. <laughs> Did not stutter. She was exercised by a... Help me about the... Capuchin monk? A capuchin. Capuchin. His name is cool. Father... Oh, Riley likes these Oh, guys. capuchins are awesome. Capuchin nuns are so sick. What they're makes really them cool. unique? Their charism super cool. They're interesting. They're, like, their charism, like, their spirituality and their mission. They're super cool. Their charism. Their charism, the char the word charism. Uh huh. Never heard that. That's charisma, isn't right? So it's your charism is your, um, it's no. So your charism is like your your spirituality, your specific way of living life. So you know, there's like different orders of nuns. There's different orders of priests. There's also different orders. I'm part of Regnum Christi, which is a lay order, a lay movement. So they all have different charisms, different ways of spirituality. You know, it's your charism. This is your spirituality. The Can way you that give us a detail you. about the capuchins? The capuchins, they're very mission oriented. So they're not um, cloistered. Okay. Like we have cloistered. They're out in the world. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. So Father Theophilus Reisinger is one, of some, one such guy, one such monk. Uh, so he, he exercises her, but too bad for him. The demons come back. <gasps> the rumor about Anna's repossession. Yeah, the sequel, part two. <laughs> so she's repossessed uh, because her father Jacob, who may or may not have molested her, and her aunt Mina, who was also her father's mistress. That's that's a lot. There's a lot to unpack. A lot here. of levels there. Okay, we'll do that one more time. So Let we've me. got Anna. Yep. Anna. Her dad Jacob mm -hmm. might have molested her. Question mark. Her aunt Mina is sleeping with dad. Aunt Mina's sister? Oh, mom's sister. Not incestual. Right, no, 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 it's okay. mom's sister. Oh, I, yeah. All right, okay. that was, I was, unpacked. I thought we were talking about Consider it unpacked. But right. let me well, tell you another thing about Mina. Well, because of the dad. And the... True, true. Mina so. may well, or may not, not also incest? be some kind of witch character because she curses Anna. Oh. Or Anna believes that Mina curses her. 
Damn. Okay. So the backstory is relatively sketchy, as you can tell, uh, but the exorcism itself is well documented. During this second possession, Anna claimed to be occupied by a host of spirits. Who has gathered in this body? We are Lucifer and Beelzebub. We are Judas Iscariot and Jacob the father and Nina, the aunt and mistress of Jacob. We ghosts are far worse than any of the others gathered here, for we have defiled and tainted all things holy in the name of cursing the child, Anna. So there is also, though, a dis difference between evil spirits and demons. Like, you could still be a spirit, like a dead, like, among the dead, right? But be an evil spirit and not be a demon. A right. demon a demon was not a living person. But if you're a bad point. spirit, you, could, you can't you possess get, people. So, so you don't really get lumped in, in with the demon. I guess not, no. That's but the you surprise. Would still, I guess you could still call a demon. Well, do you have like a poltergeist? Is that like a? I guess we're getting too. Yeah, but, but 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 a dead like like demons aren't dead people. Aren't, aren't dead souls? Like they're their own right. thing. But evil spirits can still are still present on Earth. They just don't really possess you. But they can so still be you. So she's off canon here by yeah. claiming that Judas and Jacob and Mina yeah. are all up in her body. But they maybe were just like there were some demons. They were there. And they were maybe. just like maybe there chilling, the like seeing how. <laughs> yeah, like you down. can see people. Like you can see. Let's hear some more about Anna. She levitated. She leapt onto the wall above her door and stayed there in a crouched <laughs> position, defying like gravity. Yes. That's, that's so a full Spider-Man pose. She peed buckets, even though she did not appear to take much in the way of food or drink. There's always ex gross stuff with exorcisms, right? Mm, yes. She displayed unusual strength and needed to be held down by six, and I love this phrase, athletic nuns. <laughs> Six it's athletic like nuns. nuns. Yeah, they're the nuns that compete in the Olympics. There are. There's these blue... The, we call them the blue nuns because their name's super long. Uh -huh. um, but they're the athletic ones because a lot of their... <laughs> so they started... And, I love it. So they started their order... Uh, I just was with some of them today. Their order started in Argentina. And so their things was like hiking these insane mountains oh, to these yeah. villages in Argentina. So they had to be uh -huh. super fit. So their thing was that their nuns had to be in really good shape. So now their nuns are all over in DC and everywhere, but they still have like a large, like a large chunk of their day's exercise. They all play tennis. They're all like insane athletes because I mean, if, at any time they could be sent to some rural place and they have to be ready to right. hike for days. And if your body is a temple, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a, a nice anyway. Temple. But they're but they're super fit nuns. That's probably there's probably the blue nuns. She vomited tobacco leaves and oh, other leaves wow. that looked like spices. <laughs> there might have been some oregano that's in kind there. Of nice. <laughs> She predicted that Father. <laughs> Sorry. She pre she predicted that Father Theophilus's friend, the local parish priest, Father Steger, would die in a car crash if he did not send the priests away who were exorcising the demons. And her body bloated to what appeared to be double its size, mm. and then shrunk down it's again. Like Willy Wonka. Yeah. When like. That, yeah, when she the becomes blueberry. the blueberry. Before, did something before though. But did something happen to that guy? Was she right? Yeah. Turned out he was okay. Because it sounds like she was like, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't stop exercising me, yeah, the demons are gonna chase you down and car crash you. Father Theophilus brought Anna to a convent of Franciscan nuns, where he successfully exorcised the demons in much the same way that exorcists have performed the rite going back thousands of years, and he rescued Anna. They're gone, Father. I can feel it. They're all gone. While performing the rite, Theophilus had a vision of the room bathed in flame and Beelzebub and Lucifer confined in the corner, staring at him and oh. seething with rage. Oh. Does Father Theophilus' vision of Lucifer, 
with his cloven hooves and matted black hair and crown, that's how he saw him, reflect a genuine paranormal presence, though? Could it be a paranormal presence mediated through the monk's own religious framework that conjured the devil's trademark appearance? Right? It's a bit strange. Something to think about. Yeah. Something to ponder. The report of Jacob and Mina's strange demonic curses seems unlikely, even if we hold open the possibility that genuine abuse rests at the heart of her affliction. But that still does not explain the supernatural feats she accomplished in the presence of many witnesses. Yet again, we see that exorcism and the paranormal are overlapping in unusual ways that make it difficult to dismiss them. It's the case that, to some extent, the culture is shaping the possession, possession, but the possession itself is also, in some way, beyond mere culture, especially since it defies 1928 culture in all of its paranormalism, in its whole existence, really. And uh, that's it for me on exorcism. I wow. wonder if part of the reason that, like, you know, possession and demons and exorcism is still, like, prevalent is because instead of before it, like, I'm wondering if now, because it's more, not, like, more accepted, but, like, the supernatural aspect is more accepted. And back. people are into demons, like, to like they're yeah. into dark things. So I'm wondering if that... The resurgence of occultism is, in some sense, spurring the possibility of possession. Because yeah. 1928 does put us well after Blavatsky and mm. Britain and all of the sort of early American occultists. The it's occult like, revivals come and gone by 28. I don't want to say it's like cool to be possessed now, but like... Yeah. It would be, you know, in comparison, There's, I there's guess. an interest. There's, there's a, definitely... Well, and also, like, atheism, I feel like, kind of... Speaking of Alistair Crowley, though, uh, he's going to come up in the order of confessors here, which <gasps> we've arrived at. <gasps> we get to talk about demons, Satan, and Crowley in the same episode? I don't know if you're going to like this. Oh, we're going to fight. We're gonna see. It comes from our friend Emery, but we'll we'll wait. Okay, I got it. We got to talk about our reviews first. Emery, uh, we want to thank Klingon Dirty Talk. <gasps> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you personally. Yes. But Klingon with the K. Klingon with the K. Uh, we've opened up the order of confessors. Klingon Dirty Talk likes the great info presented casually. That's us, right? Uh, uh, and the production, he, he, Klingon Dirty Talk, he or she mentions the production. That means a lot to me, Klingon Dirty Talk, because I obsess over the production, as Olivia can will confirm, tell you. Yeah. 100%. Does this sound okay? Constantly saying. Uh, Nick, name is taken, try again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. We have such clever listeners. Uh, Nick Blackhearts, Olivia. <gasps> I Blackheart you. Also, Crystal Ball, Candle Moon, Witch Face, Rock On Hand. All right back at you, buddy. Annie Velenovsky Morgan, uh, who's actually local to us, yeah. finds us so spooky. Aww. Uh, Mickey Moore, who we've heard from a few times in a few episodes at this point now. Hey, Mickey. Uh, got around to writing a review. Appreciates the research. Genuine respect for all varieties of occult crafts. Uh, I love this one. We go from making Zazaz laugh to smacking Zazaz with some knowledge. Yeah. I just love that image. Zazaz? That's pretty, yeah. Zazaz. Yeah. Zazaz is laughing, and we smack Zazaz oh. with some knowledge. <laughs> oh, Zazaz <laughs> is a person. That's Zazaz. Okay. Our new friend, Zazaz. Cool. Hi, Zazaz. Yep. They nice like it. Uh, Dylan on Facebook has asked whether I really have a PhD. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> he True thinks story. we're all joking. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, I'm actually publishing in the journal Liter- Literature and Theology. So let me, let me say this, Dylan. <laughs> Give him your yeah. work. Dylan, he's my no. professor. <laughs> 
No, yeah, right. Weird. For reals, but not. He like grades my homework. The, I don't want to overvalue <laughs> the PhD, though. Maybe is the point I would like to make here. Just because you have a PhD doesn't mean you're very good at things. Like you know things or belong talking to people about them. Hmm. Some people can be very smart and incapable of dis- uh, making other people understand things. Literally teaching and have that PhD. Other people could have the PhD and have a fairly shallow understanding of their subject matter. It's entirely possible. That's just college. Uh, so that doesn't mean you get to have a podcast or if you have a podcast doesn't mean you really understand but uh, the way I like to sort of like balance myself is I do the podcast so that's hopefully proof to at least the people who choose to listen to us that I'm capable of explaining things to people that are important and complicated Uh, and then I publish with real academic journals and that's proof to me that I know what I'm talking about because real professional scholars who sit and think for a living have to vet my material. So my the article that I have coming out now is actually about Emma Harding Britton, who we talked about in our very first series here. So I've been sitting on that research for quite a while. It takes a very long time to get published. So I started that article when we started this podcast. Wow. Right? And here we are. So, you know, I, I can get to an audience and I can sort of discuss my theories and ideas with an audience much faster in the podcast than publishing as an academic. So It also reaches a different Yeah. Audience. Regular people get yeah. to listen to this, mm-hmm. uh, which is important. Public scholarship read, is like, very important. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, if you think about the wide world, let's go ahead and riff on this for a second, right? Like scholars separate themselves from the world. And that's a detriment to the world because the people who are doing all the talking are not always the people who have really thought deeply about these issues. Mm -hmm. So I think that we have a responsibility as those of us who are sitting in rooms thinking to make the time and get out there and find a way to communicate with people that connects with them so Mm -hmm. that we don't just have these, you know, angry voices screaming atheism or screaming fundamentalism, but real thoughtful people scholars of religion stepping into the conversation and saying, wait, we have some questions, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what the podcast is all about, I, I think. Yeah, all right, Olivia. Good job. Oh, God. Uh, am I going to be... Trigger warning? I've been sitting on this for a while. Oh, no. Yeah, no, so no, no, no. Our no, friend no. Emery, who is a scholar of things biblical. Why do I feel like Emery and I have had tea before? They have sure. sent us a poem, and uh, they'd like to have Olivia read the poem for us. Oh, my God. So it's, I'm a little nervous. It's, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> it's, it's called The, the Convert. Uh in parentheses, a hundred years hence. And it is written by one of Olivia's favorite people, Alistair Crowley. <sighs> Alistair Crowley. Crowley? Olivia? <laughs> Olivia, I would like you to, I'd like you to go ahead and read this uh, rhyming poem for us, please. <clears throat> All right. I already am like, what, get, is, get what is that word? Just jump right in. There met one eve in a silent glade a horrible man and a beautiful maid. Where are you going so meek and holy? I'm going to temple to worship Crowley. <laughs> Crowley? <laughs> Shut up. It has to be Crowley. Crowley? Is God then? How did you know? Why, it's Captain Fuller that told us so. And how do you know that Fuller was right? I'm afraid you're a wicked man. Good night. The word is is holy, Grandmaster Olivia. What did I say? Holy. Holy. The word is holy, which rhymes with... Crowley. Crowley. 
Yeah, Crowley. That's right. what she said. Lucy's putting like it together. I a lot of people pronounce it holy, so then it'd be Crowley. They definitely don't pronounce it howly. <laughs> <laughs> Emery, I would like you to um, back me up in this, no, even though Emery's you wrote the poem. No, okay. Emery didn't write the poem. Crowley wrote the poem about himself. Crowley wrote that? Crowley oh. did. <laughs> he wrote a poem about himself? I mean, Crowley I'm not wrote it. Yes, of course he did. It was an egomaniac. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So Emery <laughs> found the poem and sent it to us demonstrating that Crowley pronounced his own name Don't in a care. way that rhymes with holy. I hear you, but he's also dead. That's amazing. But did he have a British accent, so maybe that... No, what would it, it still wouldn't be Howley. <laughs> it's Crowley. Okay. I like Crowley better. So this article, better. by the way, that I'm publishing, I don't mean to keep plugging it because no one can read it because it's in a scholarly journal. So, but um, it's in J-Store. it's a it's, it's published with Oxford. Don't say J You can J store it, yeah, but not everyone can. So it's published with Oxford. So all of my spellings and stuff have been switched to British versions. <laughs> so I seem super fancy and British. I didn't do it because I don't Hello. even know how to. But like, yeah, behavior characterizes has an S instead of a Z. Uh. Artifact is spelled with an E instead of an I and like what? all the L words oh, marshaled and compelled two L's. I'm it's way fancy. Still- I'm fancy British man wow. now. It's still Crowley. <coughs> Crowley. So let's close it up, Olivia. Let's send it on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Let's talk about our voices on today's episode. We had Faith Barry doing our ladies, Anna and the Lady Demon. Uh, we had Nathan Bobitka joining us for the first time as Tetradius, and our friend Sean Priest, who we see most uh, hear, hear from a lot. He was mm-hmm. doing Beelzebub and also St. Martin. Ironic. Hunter Sheeler did the voice of Bergerus. Bergerus. Bergie. Every time I see that word, I don't know how to pronounce it. Do you see it like, often? Like, 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 animal, like animal... You're thinking about bergamot? Berger, animal animal berger. Like, I never know how to say Joining it. Joining us around the circle, we had uh, Lucy Bond, Neophyte. Welcome again. Good Thanks. to have you. Uh, Riley Claxton, our resident Catholic. R.C. R.C.? R.C. All right. Yeah. <laughs> she, Roman, she's Roman, on. Roman, Roman Catholic. Catholic. Oh, that's beautiful. It's also I'm also and part also, of a movement called Regnum Christi. And are, are you a Rosicrucian? Wow, why the is there so many? Like, are, is this a conspiracy right now? I think we might be. She maybe she did the Georgian uh, play those play those <laughs> plaques in Georgia. <laughs> Riley Wait. made those. What? what? Brother RC. Oh. Long-time listeners will know what the heck I'm talking about. Uh, Olivia, our grandmaster, has left the building. Hi. I am always going to say it's Crowley. And I love you, Emery, and I love that poem, and he's such a poetic man, but it's it's Crowley. It's Crowley. She's very stubborn. My name is Rob. I am your supreme hierophant. Uh, this is We record at Chesapeake College's uh, scenic campus at the Scenic Cadby Theater on the scenic <laughs> eastern shore where all things are scenic. We'll join you next episode where we uh, coming home to America for an episode on American healers. We'll be talking Mary Baker, Eddie and Phineas Parkhurst, Quimby, and other people with three names. <laughs> Only three named people right. are allowed to heal in America. Biblical times, one named people. America, 19th century, three names. But if someone has two first names, don't trust them. Emma Harding, Britain, Andrew Jackson Davis. Okay, Uh, we'll catch you next time. Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Bye! Will, well, Bill Blatty. Bill Blatty, he wrote the book. Yep.
based on, well, he's, so he's from Maryland. The Exorcist takes place, I mean, the original story was from, uh, what, Silver Spring? Maybe the first oh, I think Silver Spring. It's a young man. Uh, little no, boy. Well, the little boy, yeah, I thought it was St. Louis. It was St. Louis. I'm sorry that that happened. No, it was here. The little boy. The little boy? What's his name? Why did I think no. it was in St. Louis? With the Jesuits. It's down here somewhere. St. Louis. Louis. <laughs> Wait, Take it's, it's, you're saving us there. the fair. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to... No, it was, it was definitely Maryland. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right, too. There must be another story from St. Louis. Another exorcist. Another exorcist. <laughs> well, I'm sure there must be. Anyway, yeah. No, he wrote it based on that, but it's a little girl, obviously, and right. in the movie they yeah. changed it. Why? Yeah. Did he ever tell you? I don't know, actually. Hmm. But he has, like, all of the... He has, like, there's all the notes from, like, the Jesuit priests from, like, when... From the whole like original like the actual story and he had all of that of like their original notes and hmm, like all this cool. stuff yeah anyway all right <laughs> i don't know if we'll use all that wow. probably that point where olivia just had to sing because i was looking for the kid's name and <laughs> just talking about st louis. <laughs> louis could it have been in st louis Saint Something Lewis. happened in St. Louis. I think the fair every day. I believe that uh, Judy Garland met someone there. <laughs> That's the same. Get out of here. <laughs> it took me a second. <laughs> See, you would get there. Uh, you had a Christmas song and everything. I okay. haven't seen that movie in a long time. Right? 